Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm really excited today to be able to share this conversation with Cliff Lampy with you. Cliff is an associate professor in the School of Information at the University of Michigan. He also plays numerous key service roles in his peer communities. And one of the reasons I was really keen to speak with him, apart from him just being someone with a huge heart and a great sense of humour, as you'll hear, is just to find out more about what's behind this service ethic. And I can guarantee you that he will change the way you think about faculty meetings and peer service roles. Cliff also has an article that he wrote on this topic, and I'll put a link to it at the end of the notes on the Changing Academic Life webpage, along with other related links. Apologies that the audio quality isn't quite as good as it could be, but hopefully you can still hear his great story and be inspired too. And he reminds us at the end, especially, that academia requires all of us to help make it work. Cliff, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to just getting more behind sort of who you are and what drives you. And one of the reasons that especially is your huge commitment to service. And I'll, I'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, if I look at your at your webpage, you did your bachelor's degree at Kalamazoo with a psychology major. That's right. And then master's and PhD at Michigan. I did. And worked then worked a postdoc sort of as a faculty at Michigan State and then back to Michigan. Yeah, very diverse background, right? So you're uh, a Michigan boy. <laughs> born and raised, that's right. So tell me about that, because that seems very unusual for people that I know in the States. They often move quite distances. They do. Um, yeah, I mean, the college, a lot of people attend their undergraduate institution yeah. nearby them. That wasn't unusual. Um, and then part of it was I got married very young, comparatively. Um, and so, you know, it was also balancing kind of a, a spouse with her own career aspirations over graduate school. And then after graduate school, I was planning to leave the state. But it turned out I have a um, family with some special needs. And it was my wife and I talked about it. And it was just going to take too much coordination and effort to try to take care of uh, the family needs from mm -hmm. a distance. Yeah. So we decided we had to stay in Michigan to kind of take care of that obligation. And is she in academia as well, or is she outside of academia? Thank God, no. She's yeah. a social worker, so okay. she's not in academia. Her father was a professor, right. which is great because she understands the lifestyle, um, but she's not in it herself, which is also but still that, that issue of the two bodies and needing to negotiate some sort of solution that worked for everyone. And as you yeah, said, you there, she has her own career and everything yeah. to worry about. And she's a yeah. professional. So I don't think even if you're not married to an academic, as yeah. most people still have to balance family needs and spousal needs and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. It's tough, isn't it, to do that? So were you just incredibly lucky that you were able to do, the, you know, sort of stay in... Michigan to do PhD and the jobs that you've got. Or oh yeah, like, I was planning to go all... back to waiting tables after I finished my PhD. Yeah. I 
done that for a long time and figured I could always earn some money that way. But yeah, I just, I got really lucky. The, I mean, the job at Michigan state that I got was absolutely the best job I could have gotten at the time. And then coming back to Michigan was a dream come true as well as a faculty member. Mm. So no, it's incredibly fortunate. And, mm. you know, there's always a, a nagging worry that someday somebody's going to realize that's too much luck for one person to have, <laughs> take it all away. But I just keep riding the wave until that happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably unfair saying luck as well, though, because I'm sure there's you would have worked hard at it and uh, no one would be giving you a job just because they were feeling sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the poor and Michigan way on the street. Yeah. Hard work. I've often, I've never really thought of myself as being particularly smart or anything like that, yeah. but I do work, right? Like yeah. I tend, the thing I'm willing to do is put in 100% effort, that's for sure. Yeah. Plus. Plus, absolutely. Yeah, that seems to be a a, a a big theme for you. It is. Yeah, I've always worked hard. I got my first job when I was eight years old, and I've had a job consistently since I was eight. So, you know, um, yeah, I've never. I've always worked. You know, I've I've had a variety of interesting jobs: mm. uh, factory work, farm work, uh, killing turkeys for a season. Um, you know, working in retail, working in service. I've had, oh man, well, since I was eight years old, 80 different jobs. <laughs> like, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So what, what did doing all that teach you, do you think? Yeah, I think there's one job I had where I had to pick up cigarette butts from snow piles and parking lots, <laughs> and it was disgusting and I hated it. <laughs> and cold. <laughs> and cold. <laughs> And it made me, and I just had this moment of revelation while I was doing that, which is like, wow, there's parts of every job that must suck, right? Like, <laughs> and that, that has stuck with me no matter what job I've had. Uh-huh. Is every job has its tasks that aren't particularly pleasant or uh-huh. easy to do, but need doing, right? Like, and so I've always, I think, taken with a grain of salt some of the parts of the different jobs I've had that aren't as fun for me, uh-huh. but I. Just, I figure they need doing as well yeah. and try to do a good job at them. But there must be some uh, balance of enough fun bits or good bits or bits that you care about. Yeah, what absolutely. What would that right? balance be? The part of that too is, you know, uh, inherent in my belief system about work is work is its own reward, mm. <laughs> um, which is, I know, a very Calvinist perspective. Uh, Western Michigan has Calvinist roots. Um, so it's, uh, you know, the part of my joy comes from doing a job and doing it well. Right. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily matter what that job is. Um, as long as I'm doing my best at it, that's also joyful to me. Mm -hmm. I love that you use, use the word joy. Yeah. And in the parts of our job that a lot of people don't feel are joyful, I get a lot of joy out of it. Right. Um, you know, I love some of the things that I hear people complain the most about. Like um, well, like faculty meetings, right? Or committee meetings in the department or things like that. I mean, it's those opportunities are joyful to me. I love them. So what do you love about them? What makes them joyful? Well, I mean, it's some of the smartest people I know hanging out and talking about issues that are important to our school or that we have to hammer out or you know, uh, people having a good kind of policy discussion about how we train PhD students or, 
you know, thinking through curriculum decisions. I mean, it, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to think through those things with people and to like, you know, have a voice in that room and have fun with it. Like I, I always enjoy faculty meetings. Don't tell anyone. They may send me the- <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain amount of time limitation. But I, yeah, I think that stuff is great. So it's really framing what, what it is that you're discussing and the, and the importance and value of that and the contributions you can make to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the privilege you said. That's really making me stop and think because there's something very much about the way we frame those things. So you could just think about a faculty meeting as, as you said, the complaint about you yeah, wasting more time and boring meetings. And I never get that. I love my colleagues. I, it's a great opportunity to see them, say hi, you know, ask how they're doing. I think, I know, it's. I feel like a sellout saying it, but I think faculty meetings and committee meetings are great. But but they're not meetings. They're meeting. They're, they're time with colleagues. They're advancing. You know, new right. ways of doing things that'll have benefit for students. Yeah, I mean, the so word meeting is weird, right? Like because I think it takes on a connotation of, yeah. you know, it's wasted time. It's time not spent actively doing something. Yeah. But it is right. Like a, a good, well-run meeting. It's a mini workshop. It's a mini like you know there are things you have to decide and yeah. things you have to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say, I've never. It's not like I've never been to a useless meeting. I get it, right? Yeah. But you know, <laughs> yes. So yes, I'm sure we would all have good lessons for how to run better meetings, right? But but what you've pointed to is something really important about how we go into that meeting, what attitude we go in with, and what's there to be found in the meeting, as well as contributed to. Yeah, one of the things I learned from Judy Olson, who was one of my mentors when I was a graduate student, is I, I observed her. Yeah, huh? How about that? Huh? Yeah. Uh, as I, I watched her going into meetings and she never had her laptop in front of her. Right. And she always just had a notepad and paid attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what I notice is I've tried to balance that. I don't often, sometimes I just have to answer a couple of emails and mm. bring it. With. But I notice that I have a better attitude and I'm a better participant when I'm not distracting myself during a meeting. Yeah. Right. And that I enjoy the meetings much more if I'm paying attention and really attending to what's being talked about. Yeah, yeah. It seems more respectful of the other people there as well and the fact that they've given up time, or not given up time, that's that's reflecting an old attitude, but that they're sort of, you know, their valuable time is there as well. Well, a lot of times when people talk about things in a faculty meeting or in a committee meeting, it's things they care deeply about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a reciprocity there. If I want people to care about the things I care deeply mm-hmm. about, it feels incumbent on me to care about the things they care deeply mm. about. Mm. So how was it coming back to Michigan, having been a student there and coming back as a as sort of like the growing up? Because often there's that attitude, that, that sense of uh, it's easier to establish your own independent identity, independent from your supervisor by going away. Was it the yeah. fact that you had enough six years away that made the difference or was there work you had to do to establish yourself just like prison rules i had to take my supervisor and beat him up during the first half of the meeting. <laughs> show show dominance <laughs> no, <laughs> i'm sure he would have handled that as well yeah he would have wiped the back yeah <laughs> um you know i think so there was a couple things that helped um one was i was a terrible graduate student like not very motivated <laughs> and you know like just really 
you know, uh, I have total sympathy for my, my advisor for putting up with me. Uh, but something changed in my gearing when I became an assistant professor and I started to really, it all clicked for me. And I, I think I was, I was a different person when I came back mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways to my, uh, the, the institution. So that helped. The institution had changed remarkably too. There are obviously people still around, including my supervisor here um, from when I was a graduate student, but there'd been a lot of turnover. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it felt like a new place to me as well. Um, and obviously and think, their memory of you as the bad student wasn't too bad. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And the other thing was, is uh, the work I did at Michigan State was far enough away from what I had been doing at the School of Information here mm-hmm. that I, I learned a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So Michigan State really is where I learned a lot of social theory um, and really, um, you know, they were incredible at teaching me about how to work with theory and to think more deeply about theory. Mm-hmm. That was all stuff I brought back with me. I was worried about it too. I think everybody was worried, you know, because you never like to eat your young. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I think we all spent the first six months kind of feeling out what that was going to be like. And it turned out what was weird was it wasn't that they treated me like a graduate student that was uncomfortable for me. It was that they treated me like an assistant professor that was uncomfortable for me. And I was an assistant professor, but I was at the end of six years of being an assistant professor. I'd, you know, gotten some grants and I'd had a couple papers published and things like that. So um, I think they didn't have a model for dealing with kind of like a late term junior person and how they were mentoring people. So they were giving me a lot of advice that felt more apropos for a first year mm-hmm. professor, whereas, you know, in my hubris and pride, I felt like I had accomplished mm-hmm. a lot and wasn't that advice wasn't feeling comfortable for me. So how would you handle that? I uh, <laughs> ignored some of the advice. It's just well-meaning, like, uh, you know, just good intentions on people's parts. And, you know, I uh, just kind of kept my head down and kept working. Okay. Also, I did get invested more in service in the external community and, and really kind of got a lot of that positive regard from um, the CHI and CSCW communities as opposed to internally. Was that a deliberate decision to address the sort of the, the issue of regard or was it just a happy coincidence consequence? I think it was just a happy coincidence. I, it's, you know, kind of if I, if you feel the warmth in one direction, you yeah. point towards that direction kind of Indeed. thing. Right? Indeed, yeah. as, as we should. Yeah. But, it, you know, and, and that sorted itself out relatively quickly here yeah. at the school position too. And yeah. definitely, I think over a year showed that I was a valuable member and colleague here. And, you know, uh, now it's a different context entirely. So why were you a bad student, bad grad student? Yeah, it's, I, I only had one paper published really when I left my PhD program. Um, and it was a pretty good paper, but still like, and there's that was no in way. 2006, wasn't it? So not. Correct. Yeah. Well, 2005 is when I was on the market. Yeah. And so yeah, uh, uh, Kai 2004 was kind of my first paper I had published. Um, and you know, I just I was I struggled with kind of self direction, right? I struggled with, you know, the thing I was good at, which turns out to be the thing I'm still mainly good at, is thinking about what's the interesting story, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, what what makes this an interesting research problem? And that, to me, is the hardest thing to train up in a PhD student. I was just yeah. lucky 
to have that, right? I, you can train methods and you can train writing skill and stuff like that. And those were the things I actually needed the most work on were my methods and writing ability. But luckily, the thing I had was, you know, I, I had an intuition for what sounded interesting or not. Um, and that has always, that intuition has always served me well mm. uh, in my research life. Right. But having one paper, though, obviously didn't impact your ability to get a job and within Michigan where you needed it. Yeah, it was a different context. Um, I mean, there were a couple of things that made that paper, I think, compelling on the market. One was that it was a very early kind of instance of data science, right? Mm -hmm. The data that I had was actually server log data from the Slashdot site. So it was, you know, unusual data. It was an unusual story. It was an early example of data science, um, all of which is was super helpful for me on the market. Mm -hmm. I actually only applied to one job that year and got it. So I've only applied for two academic jobs and got them both. <laughs> which is you know um brilliant bus on my way home today for using up all of my rolls of the dice oh that, no that's <laughs> really encouraging to hear i think for people you know right were there any other issues around it was it drawing in networks and people that you knew to sort of lobby on your behalf or was it like a pure open some, process I, my supervisor was very uh, new people at Michigan State and was an advocate for me, um, you know, and I think it helped that they knew I was from Michigan and intended to stay in Michigan because, you know, here in Michigan, we sometimes have a trouble attracting people because nobody wants to live in, you know, the Arctic middle of America mm -hmm. is how they, I think it's lovely. <laughs> I, will, I could spend this entire podcast going on about the virtues of Michigan, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, a lot. Of, sometimes it's a hard draw. So I think yeah. they actually liked that I was a Michigan partisan mm -hmm. uh, and intended to stay in the mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. And in that first faculty job, what would you say were your biggest challenges then? Now you talked before that, about fine. Yes, something clicked. So there was obviously there's also you know what what was it that made it click as well? Yeah, two things clicked for me. I think um, so. What was challenging? I think in the first job was that was reestablishing work-life balance differently than what it had been as a graduate student. I had a lovely uh, time as a graduate student, spending lots of time with family and friends. Mm -hmm. um, and as a PhD, as an assistant professor, I was doing less of that and re really having to redefine my boundaries of how much I was willing to work, which was a lot, and uh, yeah. when. So... The, the, the two things I think really clicked for me, one was I got networked into some communities that, so my comparables weren't the people around me. They were people that I looked up to and admired at other universities at relatively my same level. And I saw what they were doing and I wanted to, you know, kind of keep pace with them in my career. So mm -hmm. that networking ability, mm -hmm. that I, I'm a huge believer that academia runs on social networks. Yeah. And that relationship development is something we spend not enough time training PhD students to do, but yeah. it's been such an important part of my career yeah. is relationship development. Um, and that's one of the, that's one of the big things that clicked for me in those early years was just, I was building relationships with other people and didn't want to disappoint them mm -hmm. or like, you know, kind of slack mm -hmm. off. And them. So when and where and how did you build those relationships? You talked about hooking up. Sounds like a hookup bar or something. 
Kind of like that. Conferences. <laughs> Conferences, the, yeah, the, at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, there's a couple. There's an NSF um, kind of just workshop that Sarah Kiesler and uh, Tom Finholt here ran like early in my career mm-hmm. that just really, I think, I felt honored to be invited to it in the first place and then saw what people were doing and saw, and, you know, we just sat and talked research after the meeting and everything. And it just felt so compelling and inviting to me. That, that I knew that that's the community I wanted to be part of. Um, and then early experiences with like the group conference, the ACM group conference, which was a foundational conference for me. And, yeah. uh, you know, CSCW early on, just those meetings and a couple of doctoral consortiums and things like that just really helped expand my network and show me, you know, how it could be as a mm. researcher. And I'm looking at people like, Darren Gurgle and Jeremy Bernholtz and Dan Cosley and James Fogarty and Mary Morris and Andrea Forte, kind of the people who came out around or near me yeah. and they were just killing it. It yeah. felt like and I wanted to, to play ball in their park. Yeah. And were these relationships that you then put in particular effort to reconnect with or was it more serendipitously if you happen to attend the same conferences or how did that work? You know, a little bit of both. Like, we were all attending somewhat the same conferences. Yeah. So we'd see each other and we'd hang out and catch, catch lunch and coffee and whatnot. Um, and sometimes it was people I would specifically seek out and ask their advice. Or, you know, there's a lot of social capital building in academia. Yeah. Uh, you you do a review for me and I'm going to do one for you. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it's... Uh, more generalized reciprocity. Sometimes it's very direct reciprocity. Mm. We depend on each other for a lot of work, right? We do. We really do. And those relationships to me have been so important because, you know, sometimes it's very implicit. Like I know I owe Andrea a couple favors and sometimes it's very explicit where Darren Gurgle emails me and says, you owe me a couple favors. (laughs) (laughs) Then you start bargaining. No, but that was only a 10 page paper and you're asking me to do a 12 page paper. Yeah, there's got, there's got to be a little ambiguity. For <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it is, you're right that um, those social networks that we're, those communities that we're a part of, um, the social networks that we form, they're key, they're key to how we work, both in terms yeah. of content as well as all of the sort of stuff around uh, research and academia in terms of you know, running the conferences and journals and that we need each other. We absolutely do, yeah. And I love the way you also talked about being inspired by them as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still am. Still, I mean, you know, I, I love our community because we have so many people doing such great work. Mm. And it's not all work I'm good at doing, so I'm not going to do it. But I still love reading so much of the work that comes out of uh, Kai, CSCW, and some of my communication mm. uh, community as well. So. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's anything more we could do to try to facilitate network building or is it just a matter of people taking advantage of what's there now i think the biggest thing to do is take it out of the shadows and talk about it as an explicit academic skill phil egg actually had a a post about this that floated around back when i was a master's student a while ago that was called networking on the network Mm -hmm. Um, and it was it was something we all read and kind of believed and but it was a little more you know, how do you w- walk up to a famous researcher at a conference and introduce yeah. yourself? And yeah. 
it didn't necessarily talk about kind of these reinforcing and powerful networks of social relationships that mm. underlie our academic practice from mm. soup to nuts kind of thing, mm. right? Like, yeah. It's so much a part of how we operate. Yeah, yeah. And it's totally against that, that sort of stereotypical image of the professor sitting with the you know, mad hair sitting in their office sort of thinking uh, good yeah. thoughts and theories. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there are successful academics who do that, uh, who are kind of just off on their own publishing papers every now and then. Mm. But I don't think a field can operate filled with people like mm. that, yeah. right? Like, you know, um, I think, you know, a couple of those solitary wild-haired geniuses can <laughs> exist and should exist, but most of us have to be pretty social. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the people you mentioned there you talked about as being peers. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you also cultivate or have any particular mentors yeah i mean like i mentioned earlier judy olson she's the first kind of person in our field i talked to i i was going to be a clinical psychologist um but i saw a banner on u of m's campus that said school of information and i wanted to know what that was about mm -hmm. so i looked up the website and scheduled a meeting with judy olson uh, and met with her in her office, and a day later, I was taking her class, and my life had changed. So, <laughs> so what did she do or say that did that connected in that way? I think I think mostly what she did was show enthusiasm for the things I was interested in, yeah. and talk about how that fit into the. I mean, she did a good job explaining, of course, what information yeah. was, which she brought yeah. in to talk about. And talk about how kind of a psychologist could play a role in this information space, which she, she was also a psychologist by mm -hmm. training. And so, you know, I think it was just she talked with such excitement and enthusiasm about the mm -hmm. field. And mm -hmm. I caught that excitement and enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great. And then, you know, uh, George Furness, uh, you know, really was a mentor. Michael Cohen here. So my, my, uh, my faculty here, so many of them were mentors to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And then, of course, more broadly, you know, people like Bob Kraut. The first time I realized that Bob Kraut might know my name, it was like the happiest, kind moment of my life, kind of thing. Um, I know because he's such a legend. <laughs> I know. I was, I was like, Bob Kraut knows my name. <laughs> I don't know if he likes me or not. But he knows my name. <laughs> That's yeah. right. You know, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the lovely things I love about the Kai CSCW communities is how generous senior researchers are yes. with their time and attention. You know, it's not, it's not universally true in some of the kind of communities I spend a little time in. You know, my, my communication community is also like that, but I also hang out in public opinion every so often, mm -hmm. like the survey research methodologists, mm -hmm. and they're not like that, right? Yeah. They're very kind of, their senior members are very yeah. standoffish. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a thing we should all feel fortunate about is kind of the warmth of our group. And every every one of us can contribute to that and keep it going. Yeah. So how do, how do you pay it forward? Do you have a research group now, um, students that you're mentoring? And I do, yeah. I have a, we have kind of a, a broad group, the Social Media Research Lab here, which has a bunch of students that we kind of all pay attention to in particular. And then I have um, my specific advisees, of course, that I supervise. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and, you know, I, I partially pay that forward by, by hooking them up with opportunities and trying to get them into play. So a good example is um, two of our students attended the CHI-PC this year as kind of aides to camp 
mm-hmm. uh, and working on our video setup and things like that. So they got to see things that so few graduate students see. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a way of um, yeah. you know, and get to meet people and have conversations with some really fantastic researchers. Mm-hmm. That is a rare opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, some other people have said uh, too that one of the advantages of doing some of this sort of service work is the way you can give access to your students to this sort of broader community network through that. Yeah, for me, the service work is, I mean, there's both, I think, um, I I do a lot of it for altruistic reasons, but also I I don't don't diminish that there are personal benefits from Mm. from service work too, Mm. right? Like, you know, I I think both go hand in hand and they're Mm. not mutual. So, seeing we've touched on that now, um, we could make a joke that you know you don't know how to say no. If, if yeah. so, what if we listed some of the sort of very senior roles that you're playing? You've been the technical program chair for Kai last year and this coming up next year, and that's a big yeah. job. Uh, you've been the CSCW steering committee chair in waiting and now sort of taken over as chair right. uh, and you're doing the proceedings of the ACN you're the editor-in-chief of that correct and what else I'm the vice president of publications for the ACM okay yeah um, I think that's most of it I'm also associate editors for the HCI journal and transactions on social computing mm-hmm. and associate editor for journal of computer media communication it's just you know, I, I do a lot of that kind of service work. Yeah. I usually serve on two or three program committees per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so this year it was CSEW and ICWSM program committees. Yeah. Uh, um, then, of course, there's the university and department service. Yeah. I'm on four current boards at the university level and do service at the uh, kind of college level as well. And then I'm uh, program director for Citizen Interaction Design, which is a program I started here. Um, and then there's, of course, my personal volunteer work. So, mm. so service is really, you know, where's this all coming from? What's the sort of core values that are really driving this? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this, and it turns out both my wife and I have always been dedicated to service our whole lives. Uh, I was in high school. I was student council president, editor-in-chief of my school newspaper, uh, you know, National Honor Society, volunteer coordinator. Like my wife did all the same kinds of things at her high school. So both of us, it feels like we've lived lives of service, which is weird uh, because in my case, my parents didn't do that. Right. They weren't particularly service oriented. Um, I come from a very kind of lower income working class background. Um, and part of it was, of course, they were both working two jobs and didn't have the opportunity to do a ton of yeah, service. Yeah. And I'm not religious, so it's not like religion, mm. religious belief is driving my service. I think it's just, I, you know, I feel like if you can do something, you should do it. Mm. And I get a lot of personal benefit out of doing service, and I always have. Um, and just like I love those faculty meetings, mm. I love the service work in entirely different ways, too. Mm. It just me a lot of it's very exciting stuff to do I actually enjoy quite a bit of it um so a lot of those roles are really key roles in shaping the future of our communities yeah which always feels amazing to me that people let me <laughs> have a voice in that <laughs> that's like wow you sure okay 
Um, so it how- is. It's pretty important mm-hmm. stuff, right? When yeah. you talk about, for instance, moving CSCW to a proceedings of the ACM model, which is one of the things I'm leading as, in kind of the joint pieces of my roles there, I, I don't underestimate the effect that could have on people's careers and how serious that is for our community and the future of our community to to take on that kind of service. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's not like I think I, I, I'm the only person who could lead that or whatever. I just think I care a lot about that. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to mm-hmm. do that. I'm happy to, to I'm, you know, I don't have to do it alone. If anybody wants to help me do that, I'm perfectly happy to work on a team or mm. always seeking input for everything. Um, it's not, I don't, I don't think at least it's a power grab or mm-hmm. anything nefarious like that. But, you know, I, I think if you can, you should, right? Like if you can play a service role, if you can contribute to your community, you should do that. Mm-hmm. And some of that's my Midwestern American roots. Right, we're a very service-oriented uh, segment of the United States. Yeah. Okay. So, how do you decide what things you're saying yes to? Because, yeah. and are there things that you do say no to? <laughs> Surprising everybody, yes, I do. Say I'm no sure to there are. Yeah. Things. <laughs> uh, and some of them are tough things. Um, you know. The things I say no to are things that I don't think I'm going to particularly add to, right? Like if I'm just a warm body filling a service role or if I think there's somebody who could do the job better than I can, mm-hmm. I'll usually say no or point them to somebody who I think can do a better job than I can do. Um, some of the things I say no to are, you know, partially if my plate gets too full. Like right now, my my service commitment for the next four months especially is such that I, I would say no to any requests that came in at the moment because... I would do a bad job at it, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's another con- continuous factor I think about. Like if I'm going to do a bad job because I'm overcommitted, I'll say no to a service commitment because uh, I don't want to disappoint anybody who asks me to do something. Um, and then if I'm just not interested in it, there's certain things I, I just don't think I, you know, I, I'm pretty good at coming up with organizational structures and I like to think about implications of big policy decisions, mm-hmm. but I'm not particularly good at very detailed work, for instance. And so I turn down service roles where I just think I'm not going to be a value add. Mm. So it's knowing, knowing what your strengths are and how to, how to use them to the greater good. Yeah. And definitely knowing what my weaknesses are. Too, and knowing right? what your weaknesses are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was asked once to do some finance role and I clearly knew that that was not working to one of my strengths. Yeah, the same for me, right? I, yeah. I turned down. I did one treasurer role for an ACM conference a lot of years ago and hated it and yeah. <laughs> have yeah. never done anything like that yeah. again. Whereas other people love it I mean, yeah. and, and are very good at it. But, yeah, no, that wasn't my idea. You know, I love the service stuff. I mean, just, again, it's, it's the same as faculty meetings. I was on the, I'm also serving on the CHI steering committee. That's another service role I guess I'm doing. Uh, and hearing, you know, incredibly smart people like Regan and Toby and Joe Constant and people like that talk about their vision for Kai. And that's like a front row seat mm. to some of the best discussion you're going to see, right? Mm. Like, that's cool. Yeah. But how do you practically fit it all in? Uh, completely disregarding my personal comfort and health. <laughs> That's, and is that good? 
Is it, My is doctor it's... assures me not. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, I'm probably um, a little overpacked now compared to what I would normally be. And I do have a commitment. I have a four-year-old son um, and a spouse. Uh, and I am unwilling to rob time from them necessarily. Right. Like I, yeah. I have tried to keep my work-life balance such that, you know, my kid does not feel abandoned, nor does my wife kind of thing. Um, and so, so how do you practically do that? What does that mean? That means, uh, for instance, I don't do work from five o'clock to nine o'clock, uh, but then I'll work from nine till two or three kind of thing. And then, uh, on the weekends, I always have at least one weekend day where, um, I don't do fam or I don't do work and it's entirely to family. Uh, Dan Olson was much better at that uh, in his working career. He had really strict rules about when he would work because he has a large family. I have one kid. He has a bunch. So <laughs> maybe I'm better. But I've, I've always respected those rules of his for how yeah. he maintained his family life. Yeah, no, he was good at that. And um, if you go to bed at two or three, how long are you sleeping for? Uh, usually four or five hours. Yeah. And you know, you know, the re all the research sort of talks about uh, the importance of sort of seven, eight hours. Do you feel that stacks up eventually in terms of impact or are you one of those people who, you know, you're the Maggie Thatcher of academia <laughs> who can live on? No, it, it definitely catches up and I do catch up on sleep every so often. Um, uh, you know, but I know you can't really catch up on sleep. I've also read that literature. Uh, and, you know, it, it's some days are, are where I have to work till two or three and some days I, I can get to bed by midnight kind of thing. So it's, you know, it really depends on what's going on. Um, so, you know, that that's that's probably the debt that I'm paying for mm. the sheer amount of work that I'm doing. Mm. Is you know, because this year I have a running Kai and doing a two-two teaching load and having my own research agenda and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot. Um, so you're still trying to keep all of those plates um, yes. spinning. Yeah, I have a high commitment to teaching as well. I won a couple of teaching awards and have my eye on the prize. Uh, you know, I'm always kind of constantly trying to improve my teaching method and get more involved. I do a lot of client-based classes with students, which are time consuming. So it's, what, yeah. what do you mean by client-based classes? Most of my, most of the classes that I teach, the students are working with external clients. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. I, you had a lovely article recently in, was it Interactions magazine or was it Communications of the ACM? Which one? Interactions. Interactions on, uh, Citizen interaction design, correct. Oh, civic, yeah. in, no, what was it? Yeah, citizen, citizen interaction, interaction design. design. Yeah, yeah, treating cities like interaction design problems and design tools around that. And this also plays out your really strong service um, commitment because this is all about uh, instead of students just working on toy projects, they work on real projects for local councils. That's right. Yeah, there's a whole literature on service learning and engaged learning. And I love the service learning perspective that yeah. students learn better when they're performing service yeah. for communities. Yeah, they're so much more engaged, aren't they? They really are. But that's at a cost as well, because there's, I imagine there's a lot of overhead in coordinating with the clients and sort of you know, supervising the students as they go out. Correct, right. yep. But still worth it. Still worth it, yeah, absolutely, because... I mean, they, they learn so much more, and I have a, a I, I find the class experience more compelling mm. than, you know, delivering lectures or mm. things like that. So. Mm. so I noticed on your webpage you also talk very much about the 
one of the core, I think you said something about the core values is combining top quality research with your community engagement and yeah. and with the you know, bringing in the teaching as well. Correct, yeah. Yeah, so like, for instance, with the civic technology work we've been doing, we, we teach, I have a little team that works on this too, and we, we teach two design classes where we're embedded with communities, but then I also have a postdoc and a PhD student doing research in those communities. And so trying to fit it all into one gestalt uh, kind of not, you know, it's, it takes some coordination work, but it's, I find the, the intersection of teaching and service and research to be more compelling for me mm. than trying to keep those worlds separate. Yeah, I can, you can see that there would be some good synergies there. Yeah. But I'm still interested in, in just how you practically manage all of the things that you're doing, even trying to remember them all. Do you have particular day? You know, what strategies do you have? Do you have particular days set aside for particular things or particular minutes of the day set aside? Or you- Yeah, that's a good question. I, I read an article once that I came to believe about kind of managerial work versus creative work mm-hmm. and how you can't switch seamlessly between them very easily. So I do try to preserve one day a week for my creative work, which is writing, you know, and things like that, where I won't take a meeting. I, won't, I try not to take meetings during those mm-hmm. days uh, because it's, you know, I need to write a grant proposal or I need to write a paper or work on stuff. Um, and I do try to cluster basically my meetings into days. So like Monday is my mentorship day where I meet with all my PhD mm-hmm. students and, and labs and whatever. Um, and then, you know, Tuesday might be, or Wednesday is often my kind of internal service day where those meetings are all internal service and so it's you know i do try to as best i can try to set up bundles so i don't have to do kind of um switching uh mental model switching too often through the course of one day are there other supports or strategies that you have to try to manage it all i do a lot of delegation right uh and I'm, i'm a type of delegator one of my skills is I can delegate and let it go. I, I definitely need people who have a hard time yeah. delegating let go. I'm very good at delegating and just saying, you know, here you go, uh, succeed or don't, just report back to me in a week kind of thing. Let me know if you need anything from me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then not thinking about that thing again until they come back. So did, that's. Did you have to learn to do that or have you always been able to do that? I think I've always been able to. That's part of my not being detail focused. Oh, good. Uh, uh, turning a weakness into a strength. <laughs> so, that's good. <laughs> that is a good way of framing that. Yeah. Right. In fact, you don't want to know the details. Yeah, yeah. Just report back. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that working on as Kai TPC has really taught me that's been a hugely valuable personal growth lesson is kind of just letting things go uh, and seeing if they need my intervention or not. Like there are definitely the emails I get as technical program for here for Kai where if I don't answer it in a day, it probably will fix itself. <laughs> but how do you keep track on which ones have fixed themselves? Or do you just wait for them to email again? I have a, no, not a, no, because that's sometimes they don't have time for that. But I, I keep I kind of every night kind of one of the last things I do before bed is I do an email audit of the last two days. Uh, and I have a flagging system for how I track what needs following up. And as you know from Kai, you can get hundreds of emails a day yeah. uh, 
from people who need kind of technical help for the Kai process. So it's, it has upped my email management uh, uh, skills considerably. Mm-hmm. And what would be some of the other skills that you think you bring or draw on? Skills or strengths? Yeah, I'd say I think another one is I, I tend to um, – I like humor a lot, both mm-hmm. kind of sharing humor and hearing it. So mm-hmm. I tend not to take anything too seriously uh, and, or like think that the world's ending because one thing's happening or another. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had some fairly rough jobs in my life uh, where the work was really hard. All this still feels like such a pleasure to me that yeah. I don't think anything bad is really going to happen if we talk about it some more, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I tend not to get overly um, emotional uh, or at least negatively emotional mm-hmm. about things. Mm-hmm. Or even when people criticize me. Again, as you know, as TPC of Kai, you get a lot of criticism yeah. uh, from all sides. And mm-hmm. it turned out that one of my real skill sets is apologizing <laughs> <laughs> and meaning it. And, you know, taking the blame and absorbing it. And, you know, I, I have uh, a strong capacity to absorb other people's ne- emotional energy uh, and just kind of let it go. Or rather not absorb, but just yeah. uh, recognize I, I, it, but I, I, not I, I, buy into it. it. Yeah. Yeah, which would seem to be a really important skill to survive two years of TPC in, <laughs> in, in, uh, in that. And in and, between... And, you know, people care a lot, and I appreciate that they yeah. care a lot. They, yeah. Uh, that's great. So, so again, that's another nice example of the way you reframe things. You know, so you could just—that's one of your real strengths as well. This ability just to always <laughs> put us put an put an interpretation on something that frames it in a positive, more positive light. And it's not—I don't see it as rose-colored glasses light. It's it's. Yeah, you know, I can choose to be annoyed by something, or I can right. choose to recognize that they care. Um, there's an issue. You know, can I do anything? Can I not? This is important to their careers. Yeah. They get worried. People yeah. express yeah. their anxiety yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. and that's a real generosity as well of spirit. Well, I think it. You know, it makes everything better if you project positivity. Yeah. Everything becomes more positive, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like we can choose how we react to things. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the, the options humans have available to them is that interpretation. Yeah, we often forget that we have that we have that ability um, and freedom to choose how we respond or react to things, we and do. that it can make such a big difference both to how we feel and and the, the vibes we send out to others. I mean, it's part of my service orientation, too, is, like, when somebody's upset, like, I get this with students a lot, right? They'll come in being upset, like, this class is unfair or whatever. And, you know, I think, okay, so what is really going on with this person right now? Mm-hmm. If you think about what does that person need from you at this moment, what's really going on, mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of, like, cleaning up and passing yeah. the buck or yeah. blaming them, then it's, you know, yeah. you have a lot more options for yeah. how to act. yeah. Yeah, lots of great lessons there. Um, so I think some of the uh, issues that have been concerning me that sort of made me start this is 
this this issue of choice, the choices that we have in how we respond, and, and that can be at the level of how we manage our own busyness and all the demands on us. And I'm also interested in just thinking about and exploring if and how we might, where we might have choices or ability to influence change in bigger things going on in academia that are uh, causing some of the stress and issues. What do you see are the big challenges uh, in general academic life these days? I think, uh, so one, that I participate in sometimes I would like to not do so much is this um, front stage busyness production. Mm -hmm. Right, you put three academics into a room and it becomes a competition for how busy each of them have to basically say that they are or be yes. in order to feel like they're a valuable yeah. person. Right. Like one of the things I would love to see in academia more broadly in our field especially is for us to to slow down a little bit. Yeah. Like like uh, artis- artisanal craft research where we take our time and think about it. Um, Kai especially is a heterogeneous community. Uh, some work can be done quickly and mm. some have to be done slowly. Mm. Right? We have to find ways to appreciate scholars of both types. Yeah. So I think you get into this problem of counting, like, oh, this person has nine pubs coming out, you know, and that's more valuable than this person who has seven pubs. Yeah. But of course, that's not the way we should think about yeah. these things. Yeah. Um, so this, this kind of production of busyness, this yeah. halt of being overwhelmed, I think, is a bad sign for our community. So there's two... feeling it. Nobody likes feeling overwhelmed. No. But there's, I, I hear two sides to what you just said. And one is, you know, my production of busyness and, and my feeling like I have to sort of say, yes, but I'm busier than you. And then there's the other aspect of what is the expectation in terms of number of publications that you might need to apply yeah. for a job or to be regarded as uh, yeah. you know, someone worth interviewing, for example, for a faculty position. Right. Yeah, and one of the things I love about what we do is we don't necessarily look at number of pubs. Excellent. We independently read publications, and whether it's published or not, we say, is that a good paper, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And we do that for tenure and promotion, and we do that for hiring. Um, and I, that's one of the things I love about our place. But uh, do you ever run into issues around different people bringing different value sets, cri- sets of criteria to judging what's a good publication? Absolutely, every time we talk about it. Yeah. Um, so it's a continuous conversation we have to have, have because our, our faculty, we have economists, we have uh, humanities folks, we have computer scientists, we have, you know, we're such a, a kind of multidisciplinary program within yeah. our own skin. Yeah. This is a and the nice thing is, is we've been doing this long enough. We're comfortable having that conversation. Right? Nobody gets their back up if they okay. say, "No, this is humanities work, which takes years to develop, and is slower moving, and it's not, you know, like one of Cliff's stupid surveys where you can launch it in a week and get results back." <laughs> so, so it's it's a matter of again, you know, making the arguments for the value of different yeah. types of work and recognizing. Yeah, I think respecting that people know what they're talking about. And some of it's just this willingness to listen, yeah. you know, listen to uh, an economist say, this is how economists see the world and how we think about things. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other things that, you know, at, at sort of a bigger uh, cultural level that strikes <laughs> you as something that's 
worth addressing or I mean the, the other thing I am worried about I mean, so there's the production of busyness kind of the, yeah. the perception of it but there's also a lot of burden part of this like need to have um, nine Kai papers coming out means that people are submitting 45 Kai papers to get the numbers to work out which means that people are reviewing 130 Kai yeah. papers so like this kind of continuous amping up of expectations is going to break our community or drown it in a load of necessary volunteer work or degrade its quality because we have to keep pushing the boundaries of who's volunteering for us further and further out to people who don't know our communities very well. So one of the things I'm really worried about in my kind of multiple service roles is how can we make this more sustainable for people? Service work is a pleasure. I love doing service work. But that doesn't mean that's all I want to do with my life. Yeah. Is yes. And, and, it, and you don't want to be taking on yet more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I just agreed to review two papers this morning. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> you had just said earlier that you weren't taking on anymore. Well, reviews. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so so I, I, that's a big challenge, I think, for at least our field. I'm not sure. I don't have a sense of how this yeah. is across other fields, but I think we are on a, a bit of a creaky scaffold in terms of how sustainable our service load is for our yeah. volunteers. So any ideas for what we could do to change that? I, mean, I, I have a series of what I think of as band-aid improvements mm. of things like um, uh, more desk rejects for papers, mm. yeah. Proceedings. I actually think um, PACM being a rolling uh, deadline for papers will spread out service load a little bit more evenly for people. Um, you know, some of it, however, has to be more fundamental. Uh, CRA, the Computer Research Group, has um, a good set of guidelines for what computer science has to do to kind of get out of this hamster wheel production model that it has found itself in. Mm. And one, a couple of those things are things like you know, refocus on journal publications instead of proceedings more broadly. Um, to think about uh, fewer numbers of high impact work rather than total number of papers. Yeah. yeah. And that's an interesting tension, though, as well, because focusing on more journal publications rather than conference uh, models. Uh, then, on the one hand, and we have what we discussed earlier when you talked about the importance of those. You know, the social capital and the social networking and the, the relationships that we have and the role that conferences play in enabling that. So does that also imply maybe some new ways of networking? Because many of us can't get funding to go to conferences without a paper. Um, yeah. I think it's going to, I think over the next five years, we're going to have to re- fundamentally rethink how we disseminate our work in the CHI and CSCW communities. Mm. I, I just think we've, we've grown to a point where we need to think about some of our fundamental beliefs about how we present our work and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that it's, someone like... All, all of our specialized conferences are going too. If you look at UbiComp and WIST, WIST is artificially basically manufacturing a size limit for themselves. But CSCW and UbiComp are growing. Rexus is growing hugely. Mm. Kai is on a growth curve that's going to be pretty significant. Mm. So, yes, and it's it's great that people like you are so centrally involved in thinking about and planning what those sort of futures might be. Um, 
as time marches on. Uh, I want to borrow something from Jonathan Fields and just sort of say, what what would be um, a good academic life for you and a good life for you? I like that question. And I'm at that stage in my career where I'm thinking about what kind of senior professor do I want to be, right? Am I on an admin path? Am I on a uh, kind of running a big lab or continuously generating good research and students? And all of those, I think, are valuable, great ways to be senior professor. Mm -hmm. I think, having thought about it for a bit, I see myself going into administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that a lot, there's a lot of people who are immediately recoiling like a vampire from the sun at just the thought of that. But I, I, I kind of like it. And I, I actually like events where I go to alumni and ask them for money. Like, I don't mind that at all. Right? Like, <laughs> you will be loved. <laughs> I mean, I'm good at it. I, you know, I'm a giant, harmless teddy bear of a person. <laughs> so you can throw me into a room and I can make jokes and ask for money and... <laughs> Yeah. Nobody feels bad about it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I think that's the path that would make me happiest is mm. to think about how do I promote the things I care about, which are these, which are social justice, HCI service at a broader university and field level. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to keep, especially in the United States, I see universities as centers for kind of democratic principles and social justice. I want to make sure that universities keep increase creating and disseminating knowledge mm-hmm. helps promote mm-hmm. a fair and just society. Yeah. So again, driven by values that aren't just about administration for its own sake, but the the social justice and values that, yeah, that no, enables were, you to progress through that. Absolutely. If it were just about getting somebody to call me dean, yeah. that, that interests me. Yeah. It's that I look at those positions and they're the best positions mm. from which I can. Mm promote my values. That's amazing. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to share or talk about or any final thoughts? I don't think so. I think you've covered it. It's been a fun interview. I I just really encourage everybody to get involved in service and to, Mm. again, choose how they think about service. Mm. Yeah. It's not a drag. It's actually a wonderful opportunity as somebody uh, who spent two summers dressing the carcasses of turkeys for, <laughs> for holidays. There are worse jobs you can have than sitting in a faculty meeting. Let me and tell and you. cigarette butts off snow. I've got. Yeah. <laughs> Your CV must look really interesting. <laughs> I tend not to include anything after uh, before college. Uh, that, after that the turkey. There's also, I worked uh, security at Ziggy Marley concerts for a little while, <laughs> acting as a bouncer, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> well, that's um, an enormous number of experiences to draw on. Yeah. And we're really glad to have you uh, as part of the community and, and playing such a central role and doing it from, from a heart that's just driven by this real service um, value ethic and making a difference. I mean, it's a it's a great community to be part of, and I'm privileged to serve it any way I can. Right? If they decide to kick me out, and I just go back to reviewing papers or making <laughs> coffee for people. I'll do that. I like, know uh, people who love a, doing what you love doing will always have a role. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, and I 
I'm also happy, like I have one of my good colleagues who I publish with a lot, she's not as interested in the service stuff. Mm. Uh, and I'm happy to take on that mm. stuff for, mm. for people who don't want to do it, right? I think it's academia and research more broadly require a rich, heterogeneous set of people to make mm. it work. Yeah. And we can all play different roles. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you very much for your role and thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It was such a pleasure. Great. Thanks, Cliff. You can find the summary notes and the related links for this podcast and all the podcast episodes at www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. Twitter.